chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let's open with a little prayer. Father, we pray that this time we've set aside for you would be fruitful. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us through your word, that you would edify and encourage us, strengthen us. We pray that we would learn what you have for us, that there would be no confusion presented. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. We will call this something along the lines of, in different circumstances, God is always the same. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, if you have some idea of what has transpired in the Bible up to this verse. You have to almost stop and think, that this is a little bit strange. Moses was, as the Bible tells us, someone that God knew face to face like no other. He performed miracles at Moses' hand, unlike anything that had ever taken place in the history of the world. Think just of what took place in Egypt with the ten plagues. Just amazing. The things that happened in a short amount of time, every time Moses put that rod out to lead an entire nation out of slavery. They didn't have weapons. Swords, guns, hand grenades. They had nothing but God Almighty and His works and His strong right hand. He pulls them out of Egypt. And their captors chase them and they go to the Red Sea and maybe, maybe, maybe with the exception of Noah, in my mind, the most natural The biggest miracle is the parting of the ocean, for goodness sake. He parts the ocean, and his people go across on dry land. The captors go in after them, and they get covered up with the water, and God destroys the the worst of their past like that in one day. All at the hand of this guy, Moses. There were wars that were fought that they won as long as Moses had his hands in the air. Moses led them like that for 40 years. And when this guy dies, God comes to Joshua, the next in line, and he says, hey, Joshua, guess what? (laughs) Moses is dead. I mean, if I had been Joshua, I'd have said, no kidding. You have some other information for me. Everybody recognizes that Moses is dead. Can you imagine that, having followed that man, the miracles coming from him, through him, that God worked, And now he's gone. I think there would have been a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation, because they're at the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross into the land of Canaan where their enemies are waiting for them. Their enemies know that they're coming. And now the the guy that led them, their Patton, their Eisenhower, he's gone. The word to Joshua was, My servant Moses is dead. I keep thinking, why do you have to tell him that? Well, what you're going to see is what God tells Joshua is things don't have to change. Just because Moses is gone, and it's a huge deal. I mean, we humans, we're used to habit. You get us in a, in a, in, in some ordeal that we repeat over and over. It's hard to change our mind. And when they, when we see that beginning to change, that's when people get scared. And in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, or because of that, what are they supposed to do? 
Arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give thee, even to the children of Israel. Now listen to the language that God talks to Joshua through. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Verse 5, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. If you lived back in those times where hand-to-hand combat was your only guarantee of survival, that last sentence in verse 5, nobody would be able to stand before you. That's the biggest get-out-of-jail-free card that existed. That's the best promise somebody could give you. It would be equivalent to today, the American Black Hawk helicopters will look over you. And I, I, I sometimes think when I hear those things fly over, I often think, I'm so thankful that I'm not in a foreign land somewhere knowing those things are after me. I am so thankful to be an American on the side of right, as good as we can be. Joshua is hearing from God Almighty, nobody will be able to stand before you, comma, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Now think of that. Everybody knows that Nobody did it like Moses. We've been following this guy. Water comes out of a rock that fills an entire valley. Manna come down from heaven. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. There's a message in that sentence for all of us that follow God. He can do for you whatever you need. It doesn't have to be somebody else. We're just naturally, we just kind of think, we look down on ourselves a little bit, and I know that God, He's worked such and such miracles through that person. I even believe that God did this for maybe people like Billy Graham, but He wouldn't do something for me. That verse right there, as I was with Moses. You see, God doesn't change. And just because one person leaves the earth, God doesn't stop His power. Because think if He did. His demonstration of Himself would end... Like that, every time he has somebody that comes along that he can talk to, that he can work through, and what an encouragement to know God doesn't change. As I was with Moses, I'm going to be right there with you. Now there's the other part of this promise. I will not fail thee, the end of verse 5. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now the previous phrase before that was, so I will be with thee. If there's anything that you need in your life right now, I don't care, I don't have to know anything about anybody's circumstances. There's 30, 40 people in here. You don't need to know any specific thing about it. Whatever it is. Whatever you need, that right there is your answer. I, the God of the creation, I will be with you. See, we just we naturally that's hard for us to accept. I mean, sometimes we may have even grown up with, say, a brother, a sister, a sibling, a parent that couldn't even make that promise to us. Somebody in the natural world that we can see, touch, feel, they wouldn't even treat us all that nice. They would forsake us, leave us. If there was a better offer, out they go. God says, I'll be with you. Man, what a promise. If you are sensitive when you read your Bible, you'll notice God made that promise 
to every single person that did anything in the Bible. Think of anybody. Think of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samson, Daniel, David. You'll find somewhere in there where God comes to them and makes a promise. I'll be with you. Now that's important to know. God wants us. He has a desire for his people to know that you don't have to do this alone. Look in your Bible to chapter 3. We're going to skip ahead here just because this one verse, chapter 3 and verse 10, this is when they are going to cross the Jordan River. Verse 9, Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby you shall know what? That the living God is among you. Now, what does that mean, among you? That's not like mosquitoes that are among you. That's a bother. Flies or hornets. This is the God of creation that gave us the breath of life that did all the things we know about, that he, he parted the sea for Moses. He brought the plague of hailstones of fire in Egypt, the death of the firstborn, the plague of lice, of darkness. Hereby you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you these different people. It's a promise that Joshua wanted to make sure the people understood before we cross. Before we go in there and the swords get pull, pulled, before the bullets start flying, before combat, you have to know something. You're not going alone. You can carry that message throughout the Old Testament, go past Jesus all the way to the New Testament, right up to our day. God wants his people to know something about him. He doesn't expect us to do what he asks us to do alone. He never has. You may be physically humanly alone. It's very possible that you may not have a friend, a relative, a church member, a pastor. You may not have anybody with kidneys and skin and two ears going with you. But you have this promise here. God always wants, he went out of his way to tell Joshua, you, you get the people here and you tell them the word of the Lord that I'm telling you when we go in there. I'm going with you. Now remember all of this. They had seen what God did through Moses. Just sometimes it was an entire week filled with every day one miracle bigger than the previous day. And you would think, man, when, when Moses has gone, this stuff's going to shut off. And sometimes in life it feels like that. It would, it would be fun some night to come in here and just go around the room to every person and you just share something that you know. You're just convinced that God did for you something in your life. might be when you were 16 and you fell out of a truck, like me. Maybe it was when you were 28 and a tractor stopped when it should have run you over or got you caught in the gear. Whatever it is. Something that you know that God did for you. And remember that and bring it into your today. Because there's no Bible verse that says God just does that one time. Or maybe only the first two or three times you're stupid. Sometimes he follows us around to all of our stupid. The promise is, I want you to know I'm there with you. And it is very valuable to your own personal faith to share with somebody else, or maybe even the person in the mirror, what God has done for us in the past. We, we've 
Jen and I never really sat down and said, okay, we're going to do this with the kids, but it just, it just seems to happen a lot of times at dinner or if we're all traveling because you've got a captive audience, everybody's in the van, you turn the radio off and they have to listen to you. And you just recount the things that God has done for us, things that you know. There's no other way that could have happened. Because, see, that, that always brings with you, it brings you up to date in your faith. We're going to face something tomorrow. See, we all do. You're a member of the human race? You will face something tomorrow, or the day after, or the next day. And you're going to need to know that God is there with you. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. Verse 6, he says that famous verse, Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people thou shalt divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Why is God demanding that they be strong and of good courage? Well, what has he just told them? I'm going to be with you. See, he, he gives you a reason for your faith. He tells them, I'm going to be there every step with you. Nobody will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, you better listen up. Now, it's your job to be strong and of good courage. He repeats that a couple verses here. Look down at verse 9. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Why? For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. There's one phrase in that last sentence that needs to be expanded. What does God mean when he said he is with thee? We we probably all have a little different picture of just exactly what does that mean, that he's with me. Does it mean that he just walks invisibly next to me while I walk off a cliff and he doesn't warn me? If he's with me, the... The understood meaning of that, it's he's there for help. He's not there just as a court recorder writing down what's said, the actions that are taken. He is there to offer assistance, wisdom, guidance, help in time of need. When you read that, you need to picture, he, he is going into battle with me. Have you ever wondered, have you ever read the pages of your Bible and just sat back and thought, now how can this be? How can Samson really do what it says that he did? How how, how can Abraham have enough guts, enough courage to leave everything that he knows, his family, his home, everywhere, and go out in the desert into a place he's never been? How does Noah build an ark when it's never, ever rained? How does Daniel go into Babylonian captivity and keep his faith the way that he did? How does David go out against Goliath when every professional soldier ran in fear? What made these guys do what they did? This idea was in all of them. They knew that God was with them. It's not that they were superhuman people. I don't don't think we'll get to heaven and see that David was so much taller, so much bigger, so much stronger. I think some of them we see here on the earth are... Some people that are a little bit bigger than others. Some people put a little more stuff into their physical attributes, but most of this stuff, God was with them. God walked every step with them. He showed them through miracle 
through a sign, through one, you, you need to go this way. And one thing this leads me to think is, man, I, I need to be sensitive in my life to God's leading. If he's there with me, and if he, there's a reason for him walking with me, we probably need to be paying attention to when he starts talking. When he gives us information. Because I think there's a lot of people that God puts information in front of, and they never perceive it that it came from God. It just, well, it was my lucky day. But it just, it just so happened, I, I just, something good happened to me. Yes, something good happened. But the Bible tells us he's the author of all good things. Turn to chapter, let's see, chapter 2, go to chapter 3. Verse 1, Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel lodged there before they passed over. They're getting ready to go in. Verse 3, they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Verse 4, there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. By measure, come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go for you have not passed this way heretofore. And if you've ever been in a place in your life where you have not been there before, maybe it's a decision you've never had to make. Maybe you've moved someplace and you don't know anybody. There's nothing familiar. This stuff needs to ring true. God said, what were they supposed to follow? That ark where his presence was is going before them. Verse 6, Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. What a promise. And something important for what we're talking about that's contained in that verse 7. It says that I will magnify thee in the eyes of the people. See, God's in charge of that. It's hard for us on the human side to sometimes be patient and wait for God to do that. We get into trouble when you run and you sprint out ahead of God thinking, I know his plan, I'm going to take this step and that step. And if he hasn't ordered that yet, you take a step that he hasn't mentioned. Because see, he doesn't always go the way we think he's going to go. This example always comes to my mind. When somebody thinks about being president of the United States, you think about maybe becoming mayor first, and then a governor, and then maybe a senator, and and then running for presidency. You think back to somebody like Abraham Lincoln. His route to get to the White House was an absolute miracle. He was in the hills of Kentucky in absolute abject poverty. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody. He came along at a time in America that we had to have, not just somebody like him, we had to have him. One person. With the character, the humility to do, and the strength to do what he did. It's very clear to see that only God could have gotten him where he was in the White House. And he understood that. You can read the accounts of some of his friends in their diary. He knew that God got him there. He ran and failed the number of times, six, seven times for office. 
was almost terrible. He couldn't win. But the circumstances started to swirl and came along just at the right time where some votes got split. He ran and he got elected to the highest office in the land at just the right time that probably saved our nation. When I look at that, to me, that just it's the hand of God all over that. No human person could think, well, this is how I'm going to become president. I'm going to start in a log cabin with only three walls. I'm going to half freeze to death. I'm going to lose my mother at a very young age. All of the things that happened to him were, would look like we're setting him back. And yet God used that to forge a man of steel and character so that he could put on a certain path who wouldn't turn, who wouldn't waver. God can get you where you want to go, where you need to go, in a way that you can't even, as the Bible says, imagine or think. Very possible. Sometimes you arrive there, you don't even realize you got there. It's so subtle. God has a way of kicking doors down, slamming doors closed that you don't need to go through. Verse 8. Thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the brink of the water of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. Let's get down to verse 13. It shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. Now when you first read this, God is performing a miracle, the Jordan River. But if you've ever been there, the, the size of this miracle almost gets diminished in your mind because it's about the size of the Little Blue, about 100 yards down here. This Jordan River is not a big deal. You can get across it almost any day you want, especially if you know how to swim. You can get across it any day. But God does something here to remind the people of his past. How does he get them across the Jordan River? He can do it any way he wants. He could have two angels come down and build a, a bridge across there in half an hour and they could all go across. He could have birds come by and pick them all up by the shoulders and carry them. He can do anything he wants. How does he get them across? He dries that sucker up, as the Bible says, just like he did to the Red Sea. Look at verse 23 in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. What does God go out of his way to remind his people of? I've had stuff like this before. And this wasn't just some little stream. This was the ocean. The God in, intentionally, deliberately wrote His Bible to remind people that the crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan, it is a small version of the big miracle that He did when they crossed the Red Sea. And see, that should give us confidence. He, oh, he can handle this. He can do anything. He split the dadgum ocean for us and drowned our enemies in it. He can handle a 30-foot creek. But he still does it this way. Why? As it says right there, as he dried up the Red Sea, he's drawing a comparison. He's using language to remind them to draw the picture. I, I do this stuff all the time. 
And you've got to do the same thing in your life. That's why it is so important to have the perception to know when God has done something for you in your life. It may be God moved somebody out of the way for you on the job to be moved up. It may be that God brought somebody in your life, a friend, a spouse, somebody that you needed. You've got to recognize God did that. Why? Because he will always do what he has done in the past. If you know he's done something, you've got faith, you have something to put your anchor in that he's done something like this before. He may not bring along the same friend named Ted that I need. This time he might be Frank. But he can bring what I need. That Red Sea was such an enormous thing. The crossing of the Jordan, it really shouldn't have been that big a deal. But think about what happened. The Bible tells us that as the water was coming downstream, that God shut it off. It started to stand up on a heap. And the water that was going down, it just it dried up as gravity took it all and they walked across on dry land. But the Bible tells us that that water coming down from the north, it was still coming the whole time. Now there were, they talk about 40,000 foot soldiers. There was probably a couple million people that had to get across here. This didn't happen in 20 minutes. And as that water comes trickling down in that creek, it just keeps building up and building up. And you know human nature. You keep looking at that thing. I wish I'd have been the first guy to get across here. And you keep looking, it just keeps getting bigger. What's human nature? We get a little more nervous, a little more nervous. But God held that thing, as this verse says, until they got across. See, God can perform the miracle. He can do something for you, and he can hold it that way until the time is right. He knows all these things. He knows how many people there are that have to get across. He knows how long it's going to take. It literally probably took almost all day to get everybody across that river. And God held that water while it backed up. As the Bible says, it kept growing up in a heap until they got across. Can you imagine watching that, seeing that, the timing of it? It keeps growing. The pond, the lake, it just keeps growing. And he waits until the last ones get across and then starts flowing, down it comes. See, what that puts in your mind is he, he, the details of God are so perfect, he can handle whatever I need. Because the details matter. If you're one of the last 10% people that are crossing, I'm telling you, the details matter. You need that last 10 minutes. It matters. And God is so good at this. We're here in chapter 4. Look at verse 24. He did that, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. That's one of the parts of our ministry as Christians, is we are supposed to let the rest of the world know that God does this. You notice the language in that verse? One of the reasons that this happened, the Holy Spirit wrote this verse, that all the people of the earth might know. K-N-O-W, knowledge. The world is supposed to have knowledge of the strength and power of our God. There's way, way, way too many people that when you talk about the Christian God, they only think of 
somebody getting whipped and beaten. And thank goodness that part happened. That part, him paying for our sin, had to happen. Otherwise, we are in heat big trouble. We are on our way to hell with no exit sign. But because of what he did for us, when he paid it, he won it. And now the Bible says he has won all authority, power, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is so strong, so mighty, but the part that the human eyes saw him on this earth for 30-some years, we associate him only with pain and suffering. Now, people, there was pain and suffering when he was here on this earth. Not always. Sometimes he was feasting, he was laughing it up, he was having a great time, but without a doubt, there was pain and suffering. But that is not the only revelation of our God. There's a book at the end of the Bible called The Revelation. It's not a plural revelations. It's singular. And what is being revealed? What's the root of the word revelation? Where do we get that word? It comes from reveal. It's like pulling the curtain back, taking a mask off. What is being revealed in the book of Revelation? First verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The reason that book scares some people is because it's at that time that God is letting the whole world know what fact. That He's my Son. That's why He's coming with such power, majesty, authority. There won't be any doubts this time. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will... They'll be forced to confess... He even says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. I mean, I once saw a bumper stick, it's a sticker, it's a little irreverent, but I love it. The lamb's coming back and he's angry. And there's a lot of truth in that. He's angry at the world, the sinner of the world. He's coming back, Psalm chapter 2 tells us, to rid the world of the sinner. Went all through that rabbit trail just to point out his power, his majesty, and his authority. There's way too many Christians that don't associate our God with those adjectives because they only look at him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where he's getting beat up. See, that will never happen again. Nobody. Nobody will ever put him on a cross. They'll never mishandle him. You realize there's even a message in the Scriptures. Once he was resurrected, who did he all appear to? Who all saw him? Only loving hands and loving eyes. He was never again spit on, wasn't mishandled, wasn't cursed at. Once he was resurrected, he's never going back to that. Verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know the knowledge. They might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Let's look here at chapter 5. This portion of the Bible, the first, oh, the, the first part of Joshua, has so many amazing miracles. Think of that. It starts off with Moses dying. This person whose name is in the Bible more than anybody else, for good reason. He dies and Joshua takes over and God tells him, we're, we're, we're still going on. We're not shutting anything down. we got work to do. And I'm going to be with you just as I was with Moses. 
He then splits the Jordan so that they can cross over, just like the Red Sea. God showing them, demonstrating that, that nothing's changed. If we had a bigger body of water here, we'd split that sucker too. But it's whatever we got here. I'm showing you, nothing has changed. They get across the Jordan, and the Bible tells us in chapter 5, verse 11, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn of the self Why would the Bible go out of its way to tell us what they're eating? This Bible is so strange. It, it always tells me information I don't need to know. Why can't it just tell me how to treat my wife and be a good dad and, and get on with it? Why does it tell me what they're eating? Because verse 12, And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Wait a minute. What's that talking about? I thought that manna happened a long time ago. That verse says, the day they crossed, they ate of the old corn and the manna ceased, it stopped. You know what the unspoken message there is? That it had been going on for 40 years. And the Bible, that's such a, such a small detail, it takes one verse just to let you know how we're stopping that. For 40 years, every day, except Sunday, or the Sabbath, excuse me, this food, angel's food, floated down out of heaven and the people went out and gathered it up off the ground, for goodness sake. And that miracle got so... I mean, after 40 years. It was so normal. It was just accepted. Every verse in the Bible, every chapter doesn't tell you, and the manna kept coming, and the manna kept coming, and they were still eating manna. It just, you get at the end of 40 years here, and now it tells you... <laughs> They ate corn on once they got in there in the land, and the manna stopped. For 40 years, that miracle had been happening for millions of people that God fed out of the sky, and like that, it stops. At what time did it stop? Soon, as they got in there, and they were circumcised, they ate the Passover, they're now following God's law, and he's turning them loose in there. You see, the details matter. It didn't stop two weeks before where they could have starved to death before they got in there. The manna held on, held out, until the last day that they needed it. For 40 years. There, there's, an un, there's a crazy miracle on every page of this book. For 40 years. Years and now it just stops. Can you imagine your somebody who's less than forty years old? That's all they've ever known is this manna coming down from heaven. They would have thought the whole world ate like this, but it stopped. Did it stopping mean that God wasn't with them? Did it stopping mean that God ran out of manna? Did the fact that the manna stopped? Did it mean, did it indicate, you're on your own, I'm turning you guys loose now. I'm, I'm going back to watch TV. There's good reruns of Starsky and Hutch. You guys be on it. It's stopping. What did it mean? I know you don't need it now. You're in the land of milk and honey. I know that you don't need it. See, God's timing, His provision, the details of it are 
<laughs> you, you, you can't plan it that good. And it just happens to stop. Verse 12, The manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. It's remarkable how the Bible so nonchalantly discusses the ending of a 40-year miracle. And that's it. That is it. Now there's something else I think very interesting about Joshua and these Israelites going into the land of Canaan to Jericho here. Now we've all, had, we've all probably been in Sunday school. We, we know what event comes now. What's the first city when they cross Jordan? It's that Jericho, that big walled up city. And we know what happens. They march around that sucker seven times. You talk about strange things. They blow these trumpets. On the seventh day, they march seven times. It, it's just you get tired of hearing the number seven. But there are some very interesting things going on here. Look at verse 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? You see, you get a picture of how confrontational life was most of the time back. You you never know who was going to come after you. When you needed your walled city. When you were going to be put under siege. He meets this stranger and he wants to know whose side you on. Verse 14, And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. And you can read that your whole life and never really understand what just took place there. This person, this being that is standing with a sword drawn. There's some strange, biblically speaking, some strange things that happen here. What did Joshua do to this person? The Bible says that he fell on his face and he worshipped him. Now if you've read your Bible, and if you're sensitive to the fact that when God, when people meet angels, what always happens if somebody in fear falls down in front of an angel and starts to worship? Every time, that angel will say, don't do it. See, they know. How did Satan get in trouble? He wanted, he sought worship. The pride, they, they all know that lightning that comes out of heaven, that's how fast that Satan got kicked out of there. That'll happen to me if I accept worship. They, they know worship is only meant for, for God. So why doesn't this angel say, wait, get up. Get up off your feet. You can't do that. I'm one of you. He doesn't say that. The captain of the Lord's host in verse 15, he actually tells him, take your shoes off, pal, because where you're standing is, it's holy. An angel could not make parts of land holy. Joshua is talking to Jesus Christ here before he ever born of Mary, before he had his body. It's very, very, very likely that who he's talking to is the Lord himself. Now, let's put that together with everything we've read here about God saying, I'll be with you. And my strong, outstretched arm, 
the whole world needs to know about my strength, my power. Who is there with his sword drawn the chapter before the walls of Jericho come down? You see this little meek and mild Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He's not always with his sword in the sheath. Sometimes it's out. Now, if you have difficulty, and I did, the first time somebody told me about this, come on, that Jesus was not in the Old Testament, especially not talking to somebody there. He's not standing on the earth talking. Do you remember when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees in the New Testament? And they were, they were saying a lot of very insulting things to him. And they were telling him, we, we, we're, from, we're the children of Abraham. Moses is one of, our, is one of our people. He's what gave us this law. And what did Jesus say about Moses and that burning bush? See, he told the Pharisees, he said, I am. They asked, well, who are you? Who are you to be doing these things in our synagogue? And Jesus told them, I am. Now, where does that phrase come from in the Bible? See, to us, 21st century Americans, we hear that, we just go right to the next page, well, big deal. I am. That just means he's present tense. He's always with No, it doesn't mean that he's always with you. That's present tense. It's not the full meaning of that. To a Jew standing there who had their Old Testament memorized, they know that phrase comes from Moses standing out there in the wilderness and that burning bush. What did the burning bush say to him? It told him, you're going back to Egypt. And Moses said, I, I, can't, I, I, I stutter. What do I tell the people when I get there? Who sent me? And what did the voice say? You tell them, I am sent me. When those Pharisees in the New Testament heard Jesus say, I am, that's when they picked up rocks to stone him. Why? Because stoning is the penalty for blasphemy. Making yourself God, that's what Jesus was doing. He was telling. Every Jewish person would understand, my goodness, he's, he's telling us that he's God, that he was the voice in the burning bush. And he's right. He tells Joshua here, who would have been not too far, maybe a stone's throw away from times when Moses was up talking to the Lord. Now it's Joshua's turn. He's in charge. And this person meets him and says, you take, off the, take the sandals off the soles of your feet. That's what was told to Moses at the burning bush incident. So you can, you can repeat something without actually saying the exact same things. It doesn't have to say this is what was said at the burning bush. The Bible kind of expects you to bring that knowledge with you as you read it. So this person telling Joshua, take the soles off your, your sandals off the soles of your feet because where you're standing is holy ground. That's what that burning bush said to Moses. And Joshua now knows. That's why he falls to the ground and he worships because this is my Lord. Now I'm going to end with one last question. We sing to our kids in Sunday school that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Who fought the battle of Jericho? He's not there with a sword for no reason. I mean, you know how many people, how many Christians today don't want anything to do with, quote, the God of the Old Testament? Because they think, well, he, he's just bloody and he's mean and, 
He's not nice. He, he doesn't snuggle with kittens and he doesn't pet them and stroke them. This Jesus that was in the New Testament, he's the guy that led the assault on Jericho. He's not there pictured with a sword drawn for no reason. He even identifies himself captain of the Lord's host. That's a military title. He's in charge. And when those walls came down and that city started burning, and all of those people, that wickedness that was destroyed, that was our Lord and Savior being part of that. I don't share these things or try to magnify those things to try to make people think, well, God's a mean God. I want an accurate picture of my Lord. He is merciful, long-suffering, but He's also holy and just. And you know what justice means? It means that at some point, when the cup of iniquity gets filled, holiness has only one thing it can do. It must deal with it. That's why the Bible shows God even his son, dealing with sin, with iniquity, in some of these instances, so harshly. That's his nature. He is long-suffering. If you remember, God talked to Abraham about the event when his people, Abraham's descendants, would come out of slavery. 400 years in advance, he told Abraham, they're going to come out. And when they do, I'm going to judge some of these nations. But he said, not yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He, he was long-suffering even then. See, we have no conception, really, probably, of how wicked some of these cultures were. We think, well, golly, they were just like the, the people over in Geneva. How, how could God do that to them? No, it, it's not the same. They weren't just wearing purple. Just <laughs> They were probably doing things unspeakable that God wanted to put an end to forever. His long-suffering, he waited and he waited. If you think about how many miracles there are just in the first five, six chapters of Joshua, feeding millions of people every single day for 40 years, splitting an ocean, splitting the Jordan River, that barrier before they go in, Jesus making an appearance to Joshua and leading the charge going to Jericho. How about having to bury Moses before we go in and actually have to fight? That guy that's been leading us? If you've ever been second in command to somebody, that, that would be a tough thing. Can you imagine being second in command to Moses all those years wondering, what are we going to do when this guy's gone? We're not, we better not just replace him with one guy. We're going to need a committee of 12 or something. Because this is Moses. All of those things happen, just one verse after another. And in all of it, God's message was, Joshua, you get strong, you be courageous, because I'm going with you. I will be with you, and no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Have you ever? We, we all have. It's, it's a rhetorical question. Have you ever felt scared? or intimidated, nervous, uncertain about the future, or confrontation. 
Sometimes you need to read what God told these people. I'll be with you every step. Every day. No, nobody would be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What a promise. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray <clears throat> that you would take the words that are written in this book and plant them in our hearts, that they would grow to fruition. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would be stronger, more courageous on your behalf. We pray, Lord, that as we understand, as you go with us, that we would carry out your will, that we would do for you what you have asked us. Father, we pray for Daryl and Tiff, as wherever they are at this moment, that you would be with them, that you would guard, protect them, and keep them with all diligence to bring them home safely, and that they would live under an open heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.